Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Before we get going on this week's Corona Pod, a quick disclaimer. Last week on the show, we talked about a new variant first seen in Botswana and detected by scientists in South Africa. We now, of course, know the name of that variant, Omicron, and the concerns surrounding it are indeed continuing to grow, with global actions being taken, from travel bans to booster campaigns, even the announcement of new vaccines being developed. But as I'm sure you've heard reported on the news a lot recently, as of yet, we still don't really know the details of what Omicron is going to mean for the pandemic more broadly. Researchers are working fast and working hard to get to the bottom of this, and we're writing about these efforts as quickly as we can in Nature's Pages. I'll put a link to where to find those stories in the show notes. But the story is very fast-moving, and podcast isn't the fastest of mediums. Already many of the things we said on last week's show are out of date. The variant is not, for example, called new, as we expected it might be. And so, instead of correcting ourselves every week, we've decided to wait a bit until we have firmer things to tell you in a few weeks' time, specifically on the 17th of December show. But that show will be all things Omicron. Reporters Heidi Ledford and Ewan Calloway will both be joining me to give you a sense of what the scientific community is saying right now. And we also want to answer your questions. If you have things that you want to know, scientific queries, things to unwrap, please do get in touch and we'll do our best to answer as many of them as we can. You can send us your questions on Twitter at Nature Podcast or via email podcast at nature.com. But for now, we're going to leave Omicron and we've got a different story for you today, all about mental health and the pandemic. Welcome to Coronapod. In this show, we're going to bring you nature's take on the latest COVID-19 developments. And we'll be speaking to experts around the world about research during the pandemic. We're entering a new era now. We have new COVID strategies. There's some new unknowns and we've got a vaccine. Hello and welcome to Coronapod. I'm Noah Baker and joining me this week is reporter Heidi Ledford. Heidi, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. So this week we are going to talk about a story, well I guess a subject, but it's based on a particular paper, which I have been wanting to talk about on Coronapod for a long time, which is the impact of this entire pandemic on mental health. So it has been talked about a lot in many, many, many different media outlets. Um, and there's a kind of a lot of ways you can slice this question. There's a lot of ways that the pandemic could impact mental health. And what we've been kind of waiting for is a is a kind of a clear way to discuss it because it is quite an amorphous topic that's hard to talk about from a kind of a data perspective, a data-driven perspective. And that's what this paper is providing us, which is why we're talking about it now. Tell me a little bit about what 
is discussed in this paper and why you chose to write about it? Yeah, I think the approach they took was really interesting. So as I understand it, the paper originated with a project. There were two economists in Switzerland who were serving on a government advisory board about COVID. And uh, they were looking for ways to monitor in real time as possible the impact on mental health, not just of the pandemic, but also of any government interventions that might come along, including lockdowns, also perhaps financial assistance, you know, that sort of thing. And usually you would monitor these things maybe by looking at electronic health records, for example, and analyzing those, but they worried that that would be too slow, you know, that by the time you show up at the hospital or at your doctor's office, things have been bad for a while, usually. And they wanted to get, you know, a, um, a more real-time sense. So they, what they decided to do was to use helpline data. So they, they went to helplines in nearly 20 different countries and gathered data on, you know, when people were calling and the reason for the call. So most of these centers would, would code it somehow. You know, maybe you're calling because you're considering suicide. Maybe you're calling because you're just lonely and you need someone to talk to, you know, that sort of thing. So they, in the end, they ended up pooling together 8 million different uh, calls from, from these different helplines and analyzing, you know, why people were calling, where were they in their country's pandemic, right? Where were they relative to surges and spikes in infections and so forth? And I have to say, when I heard this, this kind of challenge of how you study sort of mental health in a population being difficult in the first place is something that I hadn't really considered in much detail because it is a difficult thing to study and this approach seems just incredibly sensible and something that I it kind of surprises me that it was a kind of a new approach to use something like helplines which do exist this is all anonymized data and I presume that this is not the first time it's ever been done no, I think it's the scale on this one I think people have done some picking through helpline data but to do it with you know so much data from so many different countries I should say though nearly 20 different countries but 14 of them were European so we've still got our northern hemisphere sort of bias our global north bias in the, in the data but it is just, it's a huge amount of data. And it is, it, I think it's really interesting, right? That there's this sort of this source of data that's right in front of us that you just might not think about you know, a lot of times. And that is sort of where some of the big data analysis becomes quite interesting. I think some of the projects that are going on. So we've talked a lot about the kind of method of data gathering. And as you say, there's a huge amount of data here. What was the, I mean, what were the conclusions, I suppose? Because they did have some kind of striking trends that showed up from their studies? They did. I mean, I think, you know, some of the big worries were that some of the more extreme manifestations of mental health problems would would manifest at higher rates during the pandemic, right? So these would be things like suicides, physical violence and abuse, addictions, you know, those sorts of things. And they actually didn't find a big spike in those. They did find a spike in overall calls to helplines over the first six weeks or so following sort of the beginning of a surge in a country. But what they saw was that a lot of that was being driven by calls about, to discuss people's fears, you know, fears of the pandemic, fears of about economic instability and so forth, and loneliness, because as we, you know, stopped interacting with one another so much, I mean, loneliness was a really big problem. These are still very serious, can be very serious issues, but, you know, it wasn't to the extreme that I think a lot of us had imagined when we thought about, when we worried about, you know, the increase that we might see in suicides and, and violence. Absolutely. And that's something that has been cited by people as a concern. And also, you know, by many people that, you know, are taken a kind of a lockdown scepticism argument. This is one of the kind of key arguments that comes up as well. And so it's really interesting to see some of these data. We should say that these data don't mean that those things didn't happen. And that, you know, there are regional analyses that say things, there's anecdotes that say these things as well. But um, it was it was notable that such a huge amount of data from so many places 
albeit with the restrictions of it being largely European, for example, did not show such a huge trend that perhaps you might expect based on the kind of narratives around these things. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Like this does not negate the fact that many individuals had horrible experiences during this pandemic. And it doesn't negate the fact that there might be regions that were more particularly affected than others. And might that might get signal might get kind of drowned out when you're looking at so much data, right? So um, so it doesn't it doesn't change those things. But it is saying, you know, when we look at this particular kind of data and these particular people who are calling in, here's what we see. And it's not, you know, maybe as bad as what we had feared. What happens next? You know, are there kind of any conclusions from here that the scientists think that they can act on? Is there anything that might be do you think this would inform policy or inform the next bit of research in any way? You know, you know, what's the kind of outcome? There were a few countries where they were able to look a little more closely at the data and um and try to pick apart, you know, what happened when measures were introduced by the government, for example, for financial assistance. And they did, I, th- I think it was France and Germany where they had a pretty clear signal that the number of calls discussing suicide and suicidality declined after financial assistance programs were enacted. Uh, so that's a suggestion that, you know, that might be a way to alleviate some of the mental health burden on people, you know, when they're going through a crisis like this. There was also a bit of a sign from the U.S., but I think it wasn't quite statistically significant. But where it really sort of jumped out was in France and Germany. You know, I mean, in some ways, it's not surprising, but it is sort of an important reminder, right, that the mental health problems, I think we're a science magazine. We tend to focus on the biological causes. I mean, there's this massive ecosystem of, of you know, everyone lives in this environment. They've got financial worries. They're worried about providing for their children. They're worried about their health. They're worried about, you know, it's all sorts of other factors come into play and financial insecurity is a very big one. So I think it was, you know, interesting in that sense, it could maybe inform policies uh, as far as financial assistance is concerned, but I'm sure they would want to collect more data. Absolutely. And of course, with this kind of data, when it's so broad and it's so um, there's so little detail. These are kind of correlations they're seeing. You can't make uh, conclusions about causation, but you can see what these things might imply, which does give kind of food for thought, I think. I have to say that one thing that I really noticed when I was reading your story, there's a graphic in there that it's very simply just represents the percentage change in daily calls to these helplines before and after the outbreaks started. And it is a really kind of notable, sudden, massive spike. I mean, it's a 30% increase-ish, but it, but it's very, very, you know, it's, it's hard to ignore. And again, I mean, is that at all surprising? I don't think at all it's surprising. But it is, there's something about seeing the data in front of you that gives it more kind of, you know, weight. And that spike maybe was not even fully reflective of the data because there were problems at helplines. Initially, they didn't have the staffing to handle all the calls that were coming in. So some of the calls just wouldn't have been taken, um, both because there was an increase in the number of calls and because, you know, you may have had fewer staff available to work during that time. So, yeah, it is really striking when you look at that. I mean, it's been, you know, wow, it's been hard. Okay, so there's a a lot of data that's been gathered here. Although there's no kind of conclusive things, there's a lot of things which give a lot of food for thought. What is the future of this kind of research? Do you think there's going to be more of these studies going on? Will it be able to integrate with the kind of more conventional ways to study mental health um, in populations? You know, is this kind of a new, exciting sort of step forward for mental health, which is quite understudied? You know, there are computational social scientists who are out there looking for all kinds of sources of data. And I wouldn't I wouldn't doubt they'll come up with something else, you know, as well that that will be sort of creative and interesting. And I think all of these methods, they have their shortcomings and they have their advantages. And so it may be a matter of sort of combining, you know, what you get from each and and looking for the common threads that, that stand out.
but yeah, I, I would absolutely anticipate seeing more of this kind of study in the future. Although you did point out um, a shortcoming that will be present for a lot of these sorts of studies, which is that you're looking at correlations and not necessarily causation, and it's going to get very exciting to start drawing causative links. And, and I find in general, I guess in my short career, <laughs> that whenever a field develops this new technique to get lots of data, they really want to make things causative. <laughs> they really start to try to draw these causative uh relationships and it is important to remember when they are discorrelated. Okay well for now I think this has been a fascinating window into mental health. As a science publication we're trying to use some evidence to, to get a window into this but I think it's probably a window into a problem that's considerably larger than perhaps we can see at the moment. Yeah I mean I did sort of wonder when I was thinking about the fact that these calls were relatively mild issues right with fear and loneliness and then I thought but the whole purpose was to catch people early, right? And that's catching them early. And these could build, you know, over time and become suicidality or addiction problems or, you know, issues with violence. And so it is it is an important issue to stay on top of. Heidi, thank you so much for joining me. I will speak to you soon. Great. Thanks a lot, Noah. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.